We all know what a cult is, right? A group of people living on a commune devoted to a charismatic leader preaching pseudo-religious messages of spiritual salvation or fear of the outside world. But what if that group only exists online? Can we call Twin Flames a cult? Yeah, good question. The Twin Flames universe promises its followers a connection with their soulmate for a price, and they're headquartered just up the road in Sutton's Bay. Journalist Jakob Wheeler wrote about the cult, and we'll hear from him this week on the Up North Lowdown from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Ed Ronco. That story, along with other headlines from the week and an update on how the state plans to implement a controversial new climate law. But first, fish. Specifically, whitefish. Researchers say the species is on the verge of collapse in the Great Lakes, and biologists are doing what they can to save them. Our environment reporter, Ellie Katz, talked about it with IPR's Tyler Thompson. Hi, Ellie. Hello, Tyler. So what's fishy about all this? (laughs) So we've got a pretty low but stable population of whitefish in the Great Lakes right now. But the problem is that they're getting older and they're not having any babies. And scientists think that could be happening for a few reasons. One is that there might be some sort of disease, a sickness that's affecting parents and preventing them from laying healthy eggs. Another reason is that the lakes are much clearer than they used to be. They've changed a lot in the last couple decades. That's largely because of zebra and quagga mussels. Those guys clear up the water and that affects the food chain. There's not as much food for the whitefish and it's allowing sunlight to penetrate much, much deeper into the lake than it used to. I mean, we're talking about 40 feet down, we're getting UV light that can, it's like the worst sunburn of your life. They're being fried. I mean, it damages, it rips their DNA apart, uh, suppresses their immune system, it burns their retinas in the eggshell. That's Chris Dye. He's the hatchery manager at the Little Traverse Bay Band of Odawa Indians. And then the third theory that they have is predation. So gobies are an invasive fish that specifically target whitefish fry. So if a little whitefish egg manages to survive these fertility issues, if it manages to survive this brutal sunburn, and if it still hatches after all of that, there's a good chance a goby is waiting right there to just snatch it up. Dang, so this this all kind of sounds dire to me, those poor fish. Um, (laughs) Is there a solution in here? So that's what researchers are working on right now. All of what we just talked about is happening in the Great Lakes, but there also used to be whitefish that would lay their eggs in rivers. Those fish would hatch, they'd run out the river, live their lives out in the Great Lakes, and then run back up the river to lay eggs, much like salmon and several other species do. And fisheries biologists from several Michigan tribes, from state and federal agencies, they're running this massive project to try and hatch whitefish in hatcheries and then transfer them to rivers where they'll hopefully survive, run out the river, live their lives in the Great Lakes, and then return to those same rivers to spawn. So why is it significant to preserve whitefish? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to overstate their cultural significance in Michigan. They've been a staple food and symbol for thousands of years for the Anishinaabe, long before Europeans colonized the area. And since colonization, they've been the backbone of commercial fisheries here. You know, think of any northern Michigan restaurant that you've walked into and ordered a smoked whitefish dip or filet. And those reasons are why researchers are so focused on this. Here's Chris Dye again, the hatchery manager at the Little Traverse Bay Band. Whitefish is a number one priority for Little Traverse Bay Band. So if you're like, why am I not saving the burbot or the round whitefish? Seeing the collapse is imminent. This is our number one 
barn's on fire, we got to try to save it. It's probably going to take a couple decades to know whether this has worked in the way that researchers are hoping, but, you know, fingers crossed. Ellie's had a busy week. She also told us about really tiny fish. We heard from her last week about possible statewide legislation to regulate microplastics. Well, in the course of doing that story, she came upon some other research out of Ontario that could give us a better idea of how microplastics affect fathead minnows and, in turn, the whole food chain in the Great Lakes region. When studying microplastics, scientists often use pieces of plastic straight from manufacturers, not from the environment. But Kennedy Bucci, a researcher at the University of Toronto, wanted to test if minnows responded differently to these different types of microplastics. So she exposed some fish to microplastic from manufacturers and others to microplastics she collected from Lake Ontario. And she found major differences in the group exposed to environmental microplastic. They began reproducing a little bit later, and the main thing was that their eggs were more fragile than the eggs of the other treatment. They were breaking really easily. And the offspring that hatched from those eggs had far more deformities. Bucci says that could be because plastics in the environment have had time to absorb other contaminants, things like heavy metals, pharmaceuticals, and toxic chemicals. Those reports from IPR's Ellie Katz. Last year, Michigan lawmakers approved a whole bunch of new climate bills that have since been signed into law. One of them gives the state the power to approve big solar and wind projects. In other words, if a local community says no, the company wanting to develop one of those big projects can go to the state and get a yes instead. It's pretty controversial. Now, state officials are seeking the public's help in figuring out how to implement the new law, even as there's a push to repeal it. IPR climate reporter Izzy Ross has been following this and is here with an update. Hello, Izzy. Hello. Okay, let's remind ourselves of some of the arguments here. When this law was being passed, it seemed like local governments were saying, wait, we should have control over whether people get to build these huge solar and wind projects. And the state was saying, yeah, but a lot of you are saying no all the time and and nothing's getting built. Am I oversimplifying that? I'd say that's a pretty good summary thousand foot you know mm. view mm-hmm. of the situation of course renewables were getting built but that development was taking a lot longer than the state wanted and local restrictions on renewable projects were actually slowing development across the country not just in Michigan okay but this is Michigan where, where there's kind of this long history of local governments having a lot of control yeah that's right local authority over how the land is used is a really big deal in the state. And it's also important to note that the reasons for opposing renewable projects can range over a whole host of things, from concerns about the environment and the local ecology, uh, to the feel of a community, to, you know, the rural sense of place, uh, to also not feeling like the community was adequately consulted in the development of a project. Yeah, so there are people who are all in favor of renewable energy, but just have some concerns about the specifics of where and how it'll go. Yeah, absolutely. This law applies to big solar and wind projects. Uh, How do we define big? The threshold for this law where the state would be able to say, uh, yes, you can build that project is wind farms with capacities of at least a thousand megawatts. 
energy storage facilities of at least 50 megawatts, and solar arrays of at least 50 megawatts. And to put that into perspective for folks in the Traverse City area, there's an array off of M72. It's operated by Heritage Sustainable Energy, and that array is around 30 acres, and it has about five megawatts, so about one megawatt for every six acres. (laughs) All right. It is the job of the Michigan Public Service Commission to put this new law into practice. That's a group you and I know because we cover this stuff here at IPR, but a lot of people probably aren't familiar with them. Who are they exactly? Right. So the Michigan Public Service Commission, they regulate the state's energy, telecommunications and transportation. There are three members on the commission and people who support this new law, as well as the commissioners, have pointed out that this panel already regulates other energy infrastructure like pipelines and high voltage transmission lines. And so regulating renewable energy isn't totally out of their wheelhouse at all. Okay, and so they are saying, we have to put this new law into practice. We need public input before we can do that to understand what people need across the state. That's right. And Dan Scripps is the chair of the commission. Here's what he said about that. We want to make sure that that we're doing it in an open and transparent way, uh, that we're relying on the the expertise um, of local governments, of planners uh, and others, uh, and really providing opportunities for the public to input Uh, into the process and and share their views. What are they likely to hear from the public about this? I mean, this process has already played out. It's already been passed by the legislature. It's already signed into law by the governor. Are they going to get more earfuls? I think that they're definitely expecting some additional feedback from the public. Um, He also did say that while they welcome public input, they are looking at implementing this law now. So they're probably not going to have a whole lot of time for complaints about the law as it stands. So they're moving full speed ahead to get this implemented. Um, This has been passed. It is law. There's also an effort to repeal this law. Who's behind that? A group called Citizens for Local Choice is leading that effort. So they're trying to get uh, the question of whether to repeal this law on the November ballot. In order to do that, they need more than 350,000 signatures. And the group says they're aiming to collect over half a million. Hmm. Uh, Any big associations throwing their support behind this? We're we're talking about grassroots, but there are some big players who have a stake in this in the the state as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Those include the Michigan Farm Bureau. Uh, They announced that they're supporting the repeal of the law this month. And the board of the Michigan Townships Association also said uh, this month that they would be supporting that. Okay, so we're talking a lot about, you know, what's going on inside Michigan with this new law that's been implemented. Um, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm trying something new, I look to people around me to see if they've done it before. Have any other states done anything like what Michigan is about to put into practice, this this law about where solar and wind projects can be located? Yeah, so now Michigan's joined several other states, uh, California and New York, but also more recently, neighbors like Illinois have passed similar laws, although, of course, there are differences between all of those states. Um, So it's not unprecedented to do this. Hmm. Izzy Ross, thank you. Thank you. Izzy covers climate for IPR through a partnership with Grist. You can find her reporting on our website, iprnews.org. The Up North Lowdown will be right back. This is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. 
In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on the Black experience. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Hello, I'm Peter Payette, the executive director of Interlochen Public Radio and a sustaining donor to this station. And I'm inviting you to be a sustainer. And this week, I have something more to offer with my invitation than just sincerity and goodwill. Set up a recurring gift of $8 a month or more to the station and get access to the NPR Plus podcast bundle. NPR Plus gives you access to some of NPR's most popular podcasts with sponsor-free listening, bonus episodes, and early access. It's a thank you from IPR and the whole public radio network. Become a sustainer online. Use the donate button on our website or our mobile app. And thanks. Welcome back to The Lowdown. I'm Ed Ronco, and I'm talking to you right now on a podcast. You're probably listening on a smartphone or a smart speaker or your computer, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, says Sarah Barrup Neal at the Glen Arbor Arts Center. But the new exhibition she's organizing, called By Hand, wants us to think about how much we rely on technology and what's getting lost. Doing things by hand is intrinsic to being human. Um, The further away we get from hand processes, the more estranged we become from not only our inherent creativity, but other human beings. I never cease to be amazed at how easily human beings are dazzled by bright, shiny objects. And I'm always interested in why are human beings so eager to hand over the heavy creative lifting to a machine? Do we want to be creators or do we want to be machine operators? Now she admits that one art exhibition will not change the world, but she hopes people will think more closely about the role of creativity in their lives, whether it's improved by technology and the value of doing things by hand. The exhibition opens on March 29th, and it runs through the end of May at the Glen Arbor Arts Center. The National Writers Series hosted a conversation this week about the Twin Flames universe. The group in Sutton's Bay promises self-help and wellness to people. Others call them a cult. They captured national attention through a Netflix documentary and other media. On Thursday, a cult expert and cult survivor joined independent journalist and Glen Arbor Sun publisher Jakob Wheeler on stage in Traverse City. Wheeler wrote about Twin Flames for the Glen Arbor Sun and talked about it with IPR's Tyler Thompson. So, my first question for you here today is, can we call Twin Flames a cult? Yeah, good question. Well, in my story, I I don't consider myself any authority on definition of cults, but um, but I, I went with the definitions and the quotes of, of Yanya Lelich, the author of Take Back Your Life, the author who's coming to the National Writer Series, an expert on cults and coercion. She's a sociology professor at California State. And I'm looking forward to ask Yanya to compare cults now and then, to compare the cults of old She's written about the, the, the early earlier cults in the United States in the 60s and 70s compared to now, compared to online cults. And in what ways do they fit the definition and in what ways are they different? 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So as you worked on this story and learned about um, Twin Flames, what surprised you? I mean, I think, Tyler, the the biggest shock value for me and I think for many in our region, in the Grand Traverse region in Leelanau County, was that the Twin Flames universe is run right here. It's run by a couple that sticks to themselves, they and their daughter, in their lavish home near Sutton's Bay. Uh, and they've been here since the early days of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. That it's right here. I mean, I think that we as Northern Michiganders uh, naively and sometimes foolishly think that mysterious, nefarious, bad things like this don't happen in our backyard. Where I mean, we're used to, you know, we're used to headlines about the cherry crop and the sand dunes and tourism and our great restaurants and whatnot. But we don't think that, you know, things that destroy people's lives can happen right here. And the Internet being what it is today, in particular in a pandemic and post-pandemic world, Cults can be run online, can be done from anywhere, including near Sutton's Bay, which is where Jeff and Chilia Ayan live. I understand that you kind of wrestled with covering this subject. Can you tell me about that? Initially, I did. Yeah, I I, I published my initial story in the Glen Arbor Sun in mid-November, right after, days after the Netflix docuseries aired and quickly became the most watched Netflix program in the nation. I struggled with it initially. I I just went kind of back and forth in my mind because it's not the kind of critical investigative story that my publication often runs. These are private citizens. I'm referring to Jeff and Shalia Ayan, the leaders of the Twin Flames Universe cult. Private citizens who have not yet been charged with a crime by the FBI or local law enforcement or law enforcement downstate where they used to live. Um, and so I felt I, I went back and forth on, you know, private citizens doing something that we consider pretty terrible, pretty negative. They haven't been charged with a crime. Is that going a step too far? Um, and identifying not where they live, but near where they live. I wanted to tread carefully there. The reason I decided that it was a story was it was already a, a national, international story. When Vice magazine and other publications, other national magazines are publishing this, when it's the most watched show on Netflix, as it was in mid-November, it's already a thing. And I felt like it was fair game uh, to make it a local story. People were already talking about it. It was f- it was overwhelming chat rooms and the, you know, the overheard in Leelanau County, the overheard in, in Traverse City Facebook groups. And I felt that even though it wasn't officially a crime, what they've done, and I use the word yet here, there's solid evidence that the Twin Flames universe is destroying people's lives. And I think that sometimes as a journalist, we need to reflect society and we need to reflect what our community is saying. But I think sometimes we also need to be the beacon, the lighthouse, to lead the conversation. What do you hope the audience takes away from Thursday's conversation? I hope that the audience at the Opera House on Thursday night, uh, and myself included, learns a lot more about cults, how online cults like Twin Flames fits into the, uh, the broader definition of cults. I hope we learn about what we as a community and any community can do to safeguard our, our neighbors, our people, people we love against um, coercive groups like this. But I also hope that there's an opportunity to kind of destigmatize and not victim blame, right? To destigmatize what kind of people could be susceptible to uh, to being coerced and joining a cult. Um, Yanya has written in her book about how you know it's it's not someone who's quote unquote emotionally or physically weak who joins a cult. It's often someone with a a high degree, a master's degree or a PhD, um, 
who's longing, who's searching for something. Um, but let's destigmatize victimhood and cults um, and realize that a lot of people, any of us, could fall prey to something like this. Thank you for hitting on that note, because at the heart of all this are people and human beings, and I think that's very important to remember. Yeah, and you know, one of them, Keely Griffin, will be on stage with Yanya, um, and you know, like, like I said, she's a survivor of the Twin Flames Universe cult. She's made it one of her missions to expose Twin Flames and to to hold it accountable. And she'll talk, uh, she'll tell us a lot of things that were not featured in the Netflix documentary or the Amazon Prime one. She'll tell us more of the backstory. She'll tell us about her journey away from it, how she's doing today. I think it'll be fascinating to hear what she says. She's t- it's taking a lot of courage on her part to speak out. So I, I hope that the Traverse City audience recognizes that. That's IPR's Tyler Thompson speaking with independent journalist and publisher of the Glen Arbor Sun, Jakob Wheeler. We should note, Twin Flames Universe has issued statements to other media stating that it takes allegations against the group seriously, but that those allegations, quote, distort our true aims, methods, and curriculums and misrepresent the autonomy of our community members. All right, let's find out what else made news this week in Michigan. The Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians is gearing up for research that will help biologists see how aquatic ecosystems are doing. This spring, the band's fisheries team will start deploying underwater cameras. The idea here is to gather imagery of fish communities undisturbed in select areas of Grand Traverse Bay and Lake Michigan. A fisheries biologist with the band says the difference between East Bay and West Bay are about as different as the difference between Green Bay and Leland. The band will continue utilizing gill nets to survey the ecosystem, but video will give researchers a better idea of how species near reefs and other habitats are moving and interacting. The Traverse City Emergency Shelter, Safe Harbor, has been hoping to operate year-round for some time. Right now, it's only open in our coldest months, October through April. Operating year-round would require the approval of the City Commission for a new special land use permit. But the Record Eagle reports it seems unlikely Safe Harbor will be open this summer because they have yet to submit a new permit application. Approving an application typically takes uh, three months or so once it's been submitted, leaving very little time before the seasonal closing date of April 15th. Less hospice care in northern Michigan after the Home Health and Hospice Division of the Chippewa County Health Department in the eastern Upper Peninsula announced it is shutting down at the end of the year. The County Board of Commissioners says it's due to staffing shortages and financial problems. Local nonprofits in the region say they're organizing to determine how they will absorb more hospice patients in the coming months. Hospice care has been dwindling in northern Michigan. Recently, inpatient hospice facilities in both Sheboygan and Petoskey announced they were closing their doors as well. The Coast Guard has suspended icebreaking operations on the eastern Great Lakes because of a lack of ice cover. According to the National Weather Service, ice cover on the Great Lakes has never been lower this late in February since the agency began keeping records in 1973. Icebreaking operations will continue near the Straits of Mackinac, the St. Mary's River, and in Lake Superior, and they could always restart operations if, somehow, the ice comes back before the winter is finished. And that's it for the Up North Lowdown this week. We had contributions from Tyler Thompson, Ellie Katz, and Izzy Ross. Thanks to Jakob Wheeler for sharing some of his reporting with us, too. 
Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Our producer is Max Copeland. I'm Ed Ronco. We're going to leave you this week with a thought from our friend Mary Ellen Newport. Last summer, she took us for a great walk in the woods near our studios, something she does with her science students at Interlochen Arts Academy all the time. I think it makes me a better person. I think it really helps me um, keep things in perspective, especially with the students, and then being able to share that with kids. When I'm out here walking along the river or on the path, I'm always thinking about the next lesson. You really cannot love what you don't know, and you won't fight for what you don't love. And so I'm really trying to help kids recognize the precious resources that we have here and then at their own homes. And what are we going to do to protect those resources? Mary Ellen Newport teaches ecology and advanced biology at Interlochen Arts Academy, and she is retiring at the end of this school year. So hey, Mary Ellen, thanks for all you've done, and thanks for taking us for a walk. Thank you for listening to the Up North Lowdown, and have a great week. Something powerful happens when many voices come together. On this episode of Gameplay, we'll enjoy original soundtracks featuring choirs from all over the world, singing in languages from English and Latin to ancient Akkadian and more. I'm Keith Brown, inviting you to join me for a celebration of the chorus in video games, this week on Gameplay. You can stream full episodes of Gameplay on demand and view playlists at GameplayShow.org.